Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one technologically advanced page of Talmud a day. In today's page, Shabbat 130, we find a miraculous little story. Here goes. On one occasion, the wicked empire of Rome issued a decree against the Jewish people that, as punishment, they would pierce the brain of anyone who dons tefillin, phylacteries, on his head. Nevertheless, Elisha would don tefillin and defiantly go out to the marketplace. One day, an official who was appointed to enforce the decree saw him. Elisha ran away from him, and the official ran after him. When the official reached him, Elisha removed the tefillin from his head and held them in his hand. The officer asked him, What is in your hand? Elisha said to him, It is merely a pair of dove's wings. A miracle took place. He opened his hand, and indeed, it was found to be a pair of dove's wings. I love this story because I think it speaks very eloquently about the actual miraculous transformative essence of tefillin. And to talk a little bit about this essence, I want to share with you an essay I wrote on December 30th of 2015, very shortly after I myself, for reasons unbeknownst to me at the time, and maybe unbeknownst to me still, decided to put on tefillin every day. Here goes. The big guy made me do it. It was late morning on a Wednesday in July when Jerusalem oozes with a thick heat that traps you inside of it like a fly in amber. And I was at the Kotel, the western wall, waiting for the women in my family to conclude their visit to their side of the sacred stone wall. Call me a creep, but I've never really warmed up to the mossy old remnant. Every time I paid it a visit, my mind never failed to enumerate the many reasons for the wall's singular significance, but the heart was never roused from its slumber. Emotionally, standing at the foot of the wall was like gazing at the Mona Lisa. So set are we with expectation of a transformative emotional experience that by the time we cram in with the masses at the Louvre and find ourselves in the presence of the real thing, we can't help but feel disappointed. As I'd done on each of my previous visits, I nodded respectfully at the wall. And just as it had done in the past, it stood there, craggy and quiet. That would have been it, I suppose, if the big guy hadn't intervened. A sizable man, he stood there, five feet from the holiest, underneath a dark awning, and motioned for me to come near. His beard was red and his shirt white and dotted with sweat. Put on to fill in, he said. It wasn't a question. It was a command. Ordinarily, I would have nodded my head in that way uh, those of us who live in big cities eventually develop to telegraph to panhandlers, perverts, and other violators of our physical space that were too busy to give them the time of day, but too benevolent to tell them straight up to get lost. But something about the big guy's invitation appealed. His tone was fatherly, as if he was gently persuading me to do something that was entirely to my benefit, but that I, lacking the proper faculties, had failed to understand was necessary. I stepped forward and stood there in silence as the big guy wrapped the leather straps on my arm and placed a second black box on my head. He asked how long it had been. I said, not since my bar mitzvah. The big guy chuckled. That's what they all say, he bellowed. 
Then he gave me a printout of a blessing and urged me to recite it when I looked at the wall. I can't tell you what happened next, mostly because I don't understand it myself. Those of us who write about religion are doomed to live with a knowledge that we could describe everything about it, the customs, the rituals, the history, the feuds, except for that core feeling, that transcendent tremor that drives us to truly believe that graceful feeling that, like sex and songs and other truly blessed things, cannot be captured by the holiness of words. I'll say just that I felt something, something I never felt before, something joyful. The drive back to Tel Aviv was longer than usual that day and dense with contemplation. By the time I was back in an earthlier realm, I had vowed to get myself a pair of tefillin immediately upon my return to New York and start putting them on every day. Doing that, facilitated by my dear friend Menachem Butler, hardly helped me understand more. Every morning, for months now, I rise, wrap the straps around my arm and over my head, read the prayers and fret. Am I doing this right? Is the ritual's force diminished by my disregard for so many other commandments? Can I truly clear my heart and mind as I pray and maintain the purity of intention one desires when attempting to converse with the heavens? These are deep questions, and I've got no good answers. I put them on even though I don't fully understand why. Which, it turns out, is more or less the point. You don't have to be much of a theologian to see how different tefillin are from most of the other signposts traditional Jews erect to identify themselves. A beautiful bit of hardware, it requires deed first and only then contemplation. The prayer, the meditation, come second. First come the leather straps. This was the insight of Menachem Schneerson, the celebrated late Lubavitcher Rebbe and the great modern popularizer of tefillin. In 1967, shortly before the Six-Day War, the Rebbe launched a global campaign, sending out emissaries and later mitzvah tanks, rider trucks emblazoned with a Chabad logo to entice Jewish men everywhere to roll up their sleeves and perform the act that, until then, was largely the domain of the meticulously observant. Jews being Jews, the Rebbe was immediately criticized. What, asked some of his detractors, was the point of a Jew putting on tefillin if he then hurried to the nearest diner and ordered a bacon cheeseburger for lunch? The Rebbe was unfazed. Sometimes, he argued, commitment transcended understanding. That's why the Israelites, on the cusp of being presented with the Torah at Sinai, replied by saying, Na'aseh v'nishma, will do first, and only then listen. And that's why you put the arm to fill in on first. The head, the intellect, could only join in once the deed has begun. Not that deed in and of itself is enough. Any system of faith predicated solely on blind obedience is likely to turn disastrous. But as I stood at my breakfast table, morning after morning, with a velvety to fill in pouch at hand, I found understanding slowly trickling in. Not, mind you, of any divine mysteries, nor of any hidden spiritual realms previously inaccessible. These will come later, if they come at all. What I felt was simpler than the intricate Kabbalistic concepts associated with putting on tefillin. What I felt, what I continue to feel, is a sense of realignment, slight but ever so important. 
When I leave the house now, I do it after having surveyed the expanse of my universe and set the Lord at its center. And whatever else I do throughout the day, I will still retain something of that kavana, the intention, generated during those few moments of morning time consecration. Put simply, no matter how I choose to manifest my relationship with the Creator, I start each day by acknowledging that this relationship exists, that it matters, and that everything that follows in the day should be, in part, a reflection on how my thoughts and my actions conform to or challenge my faith. In part, this should come as no surprise. To fill in our, for lack of a better term, objects of spiritual technology, and like all great and groundbreaking technologies, they work not so much by performing a particular function, but by expanding our understanding of what is now possible. You needn't ever have boarded an airplane and flown across the ocean, for example, to be fully aware that the possibility of intercontinental travel exists. When you think of the world accessible to you then, you think not only of your street or your block or the next town over, but of China and England and Nigeria too, which means that, however subtly, you see yourself as a citizen of the world. By putting on tefillin, you see yourself as a child of God, bound by His commandments and blessed by His love. What that actually means is entirely up to you to figure out a lifelong task that's of singular importance and unparalleled pleasure. And so I, an intermittent reader of the Talmud and Mad Magazine, a frequent blasphemer, a flawed believer brimming with doubt, continue to welcome each dawn with philactarial devotion. It might not make me more religious, more insightful, more transcendent, more anything. It might not even make me a better Jew, but it sends me on my way each day with my eyes watching God. These days, that's nothing short of a miracle. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoy this show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Paul Ruest. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>